Convenient timing, that's all. Police action was inevitable. And as it happens, necessary. So let them fumble about outside and stay calm. This is simply the beginning. me nathan pennington writer performer poet all-round nice chappy and obsessive so obsessive that we schedule this interview around a very special event that occurs in january every year and 2016 is no exception it is the world darts championship in miniature um i've dubbed it mini lakeside mini lakeside yeah and where are you doing this? So for the past uh, seven or eight years, it has been a nine-day darts tournament that happens in whatever flat I live in at, at that point in time. Um, and it involves anyone who wants... It's kind of open house for nine days, so it's friends and friends of friends. Um, and we're all passionate but terrible at darts, um, but Ooh. quite good at fancy dress. Oh, goodness. Had I known that, I would have happily come along. I was really worried because I am possibly one of Britain's worst darts players. Oh, you would have been... Okay, I mean it's, it's it's made for you, <laughs> and I love fancy dress. Yeah, so there's two tro- there's two trophies every year. So there's one for best walk on slash costume, and there's one for the ultimate champion of Mini Lakeside, and um, and then I'd I'd, st- I'd started doing these um, Spirit of Mini Lakeside awards, which are small darts medals um, for three people every year who have the spirit of Mini Lakeside. I like the idea that um, because this isn't necessarily about technique or skill, that the participants are being awarded on spirit. This is a thing of beauty. Do the outfits, the ensembles, the the fancy dress, does that get assessed separately or is that considered part of the the spirit? So that's um, part of the spirit, really. So I have a lot of fancy dress. Um, So we convert the dining room... um, into a into a room full of fancy dress. It has a hanging rail. You know, it's got a table covered in fancy dress clothes. So there's a there's a huge pool of um, of clothes to choose from. And also, people can come in their own. Um, so over the years, we've had um, one of the winners for the best walk on was Pub Tropicana. Nice. Who just sort of made a necklace of crushed beer cans and kind of put on this kind of. It's just great. Pub Tropicana um, came on doing a. 
don't know what you'd call it, a uh, conga line of everyone that was there. I mean, that, that is a walk-on, you know. Why didn't you see that in the real darts? I found myself being far more excited by the photos that you were posting from your <laughs> event than the real-life stuff, which seemed to be a Dutch dude who looked really stern and somebody that looked like he was probably a BNP supporter. I mean, I, I love the real darts. and this. I mean, I've been watching it since I was a, a teenager. Um, my dad... Um, Met my mum when my dad was playing darts for a team in real. So it's kind of been in the blood somewhere. Um, and I do support the real darts. So it's, this runs in parallel to the the real darts championship. Um, but it it's not about ability. You know, it's, it's about this kind of spirit. darting spirit. Mm. So in a way, not in a way, quite directly, you would not be sat here were it not for darts. Your parents yeah. would not have met. So in... A parallel universe had the interests not been there for Mr. and Mrs. Pennington, you would be a very different person or yeah. indeed not exist. So it's not surprising that all these years later that you embrace the the lakeside tradition and um, and celebrate it. So in a way, it's the spirit of life. Yeah. And with regards to the professional dart players, who do you like at the moment and why? So I've supported Tony O'Shea for a very long time, and he's been a bit of a disappointment the last couple of years. He's um he's called nicknamed the Silverback, um so there's a lot of monkey sort of references, but uh, yes, he's called the Silverback because he has a really hairy back. Um, but he's a lovely man, uh, and he would be a brilliant champion. Um, he got to the final 2013, played really terribly. Um, last two years been out in the first round, so it was a bit of a disappointment. But Mini Lakeside sort of makes up for that. It has its own momentum. Um, so this year, the winners were... I mean, this is something you might want to hear. Um, so Spirit of Mini Lakeside went to uh, a guy from Lithuania. He's a, the boyfriend of a, a friend of my girlfriend. So it's kind of quite a, a long chain. Um, but for his walk-on, he came down the stairs in the hallway face first to uh, the theme tune from 2001. Nice! Uh, sort of went face first along the floor, up the wall to the dartboard, and then bent over backwards. And it was such an avant-garde approach to the idea of a walk-on. Um, and this man hadn't really played darts before. And by the end of the week, he was really... He was okay. Actually. Does he need to with an entrance like that? <laughs> no, he probably doesn't. But, I mean, I'd just love to see that in the real darts. So he got a Spirit of Mini Lakeside Award. Um, as did some other people who were kind of new to darts. My friend Gary um, travelled from North Wales to, to be at the first sort of two days of Mini Lakeside. And then went back to North Wales and managed to convince his local pub to host two Skype darts matches. Um, so we Skyped from... from Skype my darts? So it's called Scarts, I think. Uh, so we... we Scarts! So we had a Scarts match from uh, our flat in Hackney to uh, a pub in North Wales where everyone in Hackney was dressed in fancy dress. And um, my friend Gary had worked out a way to not only Skype, which is fairly easy these days, but to transmit that to the pub tv so we were broadcast to the telly in the pub uh, while we played this two terrible games of darts um the pub won the first one and then later in the week uh, we won the second so we'll be due another one at some point the idea that you're incorporating technology with uh, you know, a very traditional historical much loved um Sporting activity is a thing of beauty. And then naming it after an outmoded connection for television. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> the, the Scott lives. I can't tell if it's art or sport anymore. Um, but the best, the, the, the award to the, the best walk on this year went to uh, a friend of mine called Tom. Uh, and Tom has won the, the main award at Mini Lakeside for a few years of being the best darts player. Um, but this year he won the best walk on because he came as 
a shelf of trophies he's won previously. So he wore this shelf as a kind of hat with a black drape in front of him um, and came on to Crazy Frog version of We Are The Champions. We are the champions, my friends. Uh, his name was Tom Bastic for this. And then uh, with the shelf of hubris. And then uh, you'll, you'll hear the point in the, in the song where he whipped off the shelf um, and then stripped off to a sequined girls gymnastic outfit um, and did a sort of gymnastics routine. I mean, that is a walk-on. Uh, I mean, my word. I thought the Lithuanian had it with that uh, standing Kubrick It was tough competition thing. this year. Oh, my word. Did anybody uh, adopt the Simeon look of your faved arts player, or was that is that a no-go area? Uh, well, I mean, there are sort of monkey references, but, I mean, because that's a, a thing that happens in actual darts, and you kind of need to get past that, really. Yeah, fair enough. So it's like, art really shouldn't imitate life. This is about creating new heroes and new... If you were leaders of the of the, of the spirit of, yeah. of the, the the mini lakeside yeah. uh, championships, yeah. and how regularly is this just a January thing? Or? It runs nine days at the same time as a real World Darts Championship, and that's my my sport over for the year. I mean, I don't watch football. I don't you know. I don't watch Why? tennis, cricket. Foot- Why waste your time? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so nine days. I'm done. Keep an eye on what who's playing well towards the end of the year, and then January mini lakeside when most people are suffering from post holiday and christmas blues you are in fact rejoicing in the majesty of of darts i mean the first you know the first two weeks of january are some of the best days of the year really because you can you, <laughs> you can look back at any point at the absurdity of what had happened during those nine days and it's joyous you know why why would you not want that at the beginning of your of your year that's one hell of a way to bookend your year but I think it's brilliant. Well, you're invited next year, I'm, so two, I'm gonna come, 2017. I'll be bringing no skill to the party, but I'm up for making quite an entrance. Great, well, we'll see you then. This poem is about the weather. It's called freezing. Your performance went cold as soon as you hit the stage. been a couple of years since we had you here on the Dookie Radio Show. In fact, it was January of 2014. That podcast is still available for everyone's listening pleasure, and a link for it will be posted at facebook.com forward slash the Dookie Radio Show, as well as within the description of this very episode. Back then, you visited our then facilities in the left ventricle of Croydon at Croydon Radio. At the time... Choose Your Own Documentary was very much in its launch phase. And since then, you've been around the world and everywhere. De Niro turning up to your performances. You've been to South by Southwest, Australia. No wonder it's been so long since you've been here. How has it been? How has the journey been from doing those eBay purchases, which kick-started both uh, The Boy in the Book and uh, Choose Your Own Documentary? How's the whole process been for you? Um, 
it seems quite incredible if I think backwards to the time when I'd be like, oh, I really want to buy those books and kind of maybe reminisce a little bit. And I suppose that was the the impulse behind buying them. Um, and to this point now, it still seems utterly bewildering that those things would have happened really. Um, but it's also felt like quite a natural process in a way, in an odd sort of way. Um, not that I believe in fate or anything as ridiculous as that, but it's the story is inevitable in a sense. Um, the story is inevitable, but in a way, the outcome of it at each performance can be different by the whole nature that audience members are there equipped with telecommunication devices, often in 1980s fashion, pointing them at the screen. What is the the shortest production time that you, you've had? Because in theory, just like with the Choose Your Own, Own Adventure uh, series of books, if you make the wrong couple of decisions, you, you could end that story prematurely, or indeed where destiny wanted you to be. Did you have any performances where it was, sorry, 10 minutes, okay, bye-bye? The, the shortest possible version of the show is about 18 minutes. And um, the question that the audience get asked is, um, should I try and find Terence Prendergast and reunite him with his lost diary, which was the, the diary that I'd found hidden in, in the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Now, at this moment in time, no audience, uh, majority, has said, no, we don't want to find him. Um, but I think if an audience does decide that they're not there, they've read, if they've read the programme description, they bought tickets, and they've still decided that they that we shouldn't try and find him, then none of us want to be in that room. And I think it's only right that the audience get ushered out after 18 minutes. We're just kind of wasting everybody's time, really. Um, so that's the shortest possible route. When and did that actually happen? It hasn't happened, no. I mean, it's there. I mean, it's written into the show because I always think, you know, you need some element of jeopardy to make these things interesting. Um, it is possible for an audience to kill me in the same way that you can die in Choose Your Own Adventure books. Um, so there is a route where I get killed off by uh, reckless decision after reckless decision, really. Did you have to practice any kind of fake dying with dramatic falls? You're in a thespian being used to its fullest extent uh yeah i mean there's um i don't know if you've if you saw this end or not but there is a there is a route through where the audience can choose really badly and start blaming other people for for my own failings really um and i mean it's not revealing too much to say that edward packard the he's now 85 originator of choose your own adventure books wrote as a very specific death um, for the show, which we filmed, me and Edward Packard uh, star in this ending, um, and neither of us are actors, I think that's fair to say. Um, so it ends up with me being um, buried up to my neck in extremely hot sand. Um, when we filmed it, it was my birthday, and we were in uh, in the Hamptons, uh, just off long, the end of Long Island in New York, um, and it was incredibly hot, and there was pouring burning sand on me, and that was, it really did feel like death. Um, and afterwards, when we'd finally been filming all day, finally got something to eat, and uh, for an hour and a half, I just had a nosebleed. Um, I guess the kind of all the, the pressure and the, the heat had got to me. So it was, uh, yeah, it, it sort of felt right, really, that that, that had to happen in, a, in an odd way. I feel really horrible. I didn't get to see that particular ending. I feel as though I really missed out on it, it, on some thespian goodness. Yeah, there. you did. I mean, I, was got, I had to overlay a couple of screams because um, my screams in in real life while we were filming weren't quite as um, powerful enough. 
um, really. But it does end with me in my uh, swimming trunks on stage, uh, covered in water. So uh, there are moments when we've been performing the show. And I think the first time we went to Edinburgh with the show, um, for some reason, the audience had chosen that I would die. Um, and as usual for kind of Edinburgh shows, the first couple of performances aren't necessarily uh, to huge audiences. Um, so I was backstage sort of stripping off and getting into my swimming trunks, just pouring water on myself, crouching in this kind of kind of shower-like cubicle space backstage going, this, what have I done to my life? Is this it? Is this, is this what it's supposed to be like? You know? Um, and then, so when we went to Australia to do the show at a documentary festival, you know, flying 24 hours, um, and then being in Australia for 24 hours and just feeling this incredible jet lag, and I've never flown as far as that. And, um, the audience again chose death, and I was there backstage. That seems <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> Australian somehow. Yeah, it was inevitable. But there was another joke there that I didn't I didn't know about was that I came out in these tiny uh, sort of budgie smugglers, as the Australians call them, tiny red uh, swimming trunks with choose and adventure embroidered across the bum, and uh, the Australians loved it uh, because, and even more so because their their president. Uh, president, Prime Minister, is famous for wearing sort of red budgie smugglers. So there was another layer of parody somehow that I hadn't known about. So it did make it worthwhile, even though I stood there with extreme kind of jet lag. And is this it? Is this what my life has become? Um, it was worth it for that. Over the entire tour that you've done with uh, this particular show, UK, USA, Australia... What other territories have you been to? Um, I think that's it, yeah. Right. I mean, these are vast parts of the world, so I'm not flippantly going, well... (laughs) Yeah, where else have you been? Where else did you go? (laughs) Hey, what the hell? Africa's out there, you bastard. Did you have the same crew, the same people sort of working behind the scenes, making sure that all the equipment was working uh, properly, or did you recruit local people or a bit of both? Um, So, yeah, there's only four of us that that made the show, so it's me and uh, three filmmakers... Um, and for most of the big, the bigger shows, as in festival shows, we kind of all went along with as many as possible. Um, but for the UK tour, we kind of booked a, a tour person to come on the road and, and work it that was was separate to them. Um, so we had quite a intensive kind of rehearsal period because it's not like just rehearsing a normal show. Um, you know, there are fifty over fifteen hundred different possible versions, so it's a case of trying to have rehearsals where you might say well this might happen this is what happens next so but he did a very good job but he was he was an excellent kind of person to be on the road with and uh, yeah so but but for festival appearances they kind of trying to do tech um where you might say to the to the lighting manager we need this kind of lighting if this happens i mean it's quite it gets quite a complex procedure so we always need someone that's kind of been on the road Autopilot and muscle memory are not issues if you're working behind the scenes on Choose Your Own Documentary. It's You have to be on your toes. In Edinburgh, where a lot of people get festival fever and imbibe, uh, shall we say, too much. And by imbibe, I'm not just referring to alcohol, I'm referring to battered food products. Um, <laughs> did your uh, team of three other people um, manage to to hold it together were they resilient enough to handle scotland in august um yeah i think so i mean i was um i was dry for the the two edinburgh's that we that we took choose your own documentary up there 
um, which is different than my my earlier Edinburgh appearances. You know, because um, like you say, Edinburgh is a is a is a festival of excess in all sorts of ways, really. Um, and because it's kind of mainly a festival about meeting people and being out, and you know, and the fun is such a huge part of that. Um, but for this show, it's kind of like we had. I think the first year we did it, we were on at like one o'clock in the afternoon, so you couldn't really go out until like Edinburgh four or five in the morning, and and then still get up and do it. Um, so I was really dry. I was um, sort of avoided drink because you can't do the show with a hangover, which is probably it's. I don't know. Is that a good thing? I think it is. Absolutely, it's good yeah. for your body. Your liver yeah, thanks yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've received uh, an email from your liver. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Dear Nathan. Did you find the audiences different from a, a feel point of view? Obviously, you're up there and the endings can always vary in the way that the whole kind of rich tapestry of, of options are explored can change. Did you find, for instance, at South by Southwest, the audiences to be different in feel or from, say, Edinburgh or the documentary festival that you went to in Australia? Yeah, I think um, sort of a game I normally sort of play with myself mainly is that during the first 15, 20 minutes of the show, I'm usually trying to sort of second guess what kind of audience we're in by their reactions to certain sort of jokes or kind of moments where you'd expect more of an emotional response from an audience and and trying to second guess where that might lead them, uh, you know, to to the various endings. But um, I think... American audiences were—I didn't know if it would how it would go. For example, at um, Tribeca Film Festival, because it, it is a very British show. It's even though it's about an American phenomenon, it's been sort of filtered through like a, a British adventure, I suppose you would call it. Um, and the jokes are very British, but it it worked really well and it translated uh, amazingly well. And I think the Americans particularly were kind of up for the the romantic angle. There's a kind of romantic storyline in there, and that took me by surprise a little bit. But um, yeah, they were great. I mean, there is one route through the show where you can end up meeting other now grown up kids, you know, adults who love these books as children. And one of those children that we'd filmed with, uh, who's now like a 40 year old man, came to watch the show. And luckily, he got the ending where you kind of you see his path. Um, and you could see people nudging themselves, going, I think that's him at the end. He's over there. He's over there. He's over there. So at the end of the show, it's like, oh, we've got a very special guest here to welcome, please. You know, please welcome. Um, and this gentleman stood up. Uh, he did like a 360 degree wave. Um, and then American audiences were just chanting his name. And I felt like I was hosting Jerry Springer, which was amazing. That was, you know, <laughs> the closest I'm going to get. But that was, that was it. It was Jerry Springer only without the fighting after Without the fighting, yeah. But it felt like that audience sort of, the American audience of chanting someone's name. I mean, you're not going to get that in um, in Hastings, for example. No, especially not Hastings. Or London, for that matter. I've had the pleasure of seeing the production twice. Once at the Soho Theatre here in London and during your second run at Edinburgh. In both instances, the audiences were quite similar. To be fair, in Edinburgh, it was probably a predominantly London audience there. Did you have to alter any of the the lingo or explain references to the Americans? Obviously, the majesty of real, although self-evident in the footage and the photos that you show, might not be as as obvious to somebody from Syracuse, New York, who's at the Ithaca Film Festival. Did you have to give 
American references. Yeah, just just one or two. I mean, I, we had thought about sort of changing some of the the references, like Weetabix doesn't exist as a cereal in the hey, US. What the hell but, is that? Is that like Wheaties? Yeah, but I, I, you know, you don't, you, I think you can over-explain too many things, and I think you, things don't need explaining. Um, I think that, like you say, the majesty of real. Um, I think while we were in New York, I was like, it was like Coney Island in the in the 80s, but more run down, you know. That, ah, that so you, you had a couple of gems yeah, yeah, to make like, it come alive. Yeah, yeah. Coney Island <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> but more run down, I mean, because it was such a, you know, a, a pit of um, of drugs and despair, I think, in that point. Whoops. Just like, so like real now, just, yeah. Just like real Bill in 2016. I remember you saying off-air when we first spoke about the production during your first Dukey Radio Show visit, that the the production has managed to affect some audience members in quite a visceral and very obvious way, to the point where, whereby you've had people in tears. You've had people who have been inspired to make some very life-changing decisions, perhaps with their own relationships and in doing so, because you're the conduit for it, have also extolled your own virtues and maybe felt that you would be, for want of a better word, a guide for them. Were there any documentary groupies that you had to fend off? And that's a legitimate question, because it is quite a, an emotional roller coaster that the production involves. I think um, it's partly due to um, me sharing so much of my own life I guess in quite an open way that um is perhaps disarming for for some people and uh, and also people kind of who may maybe at kind of points in their lives that they can identify with you know in terms of the of the show and and yeah people have kind of either come up to me or kind of emailed about decisions they've made or they're thinking of making and and asking if you know I could give him you know any advice and you know i'm not a trained counselor in that in that regard um so what i've answered to those kind of people is you know as i would as a human but not to take my advice particularly more seriously than that you know as i'm a complete stranger but i'm very honored that people kind of want to unload some of that stuff onto me or kind of feel that you know i i would be suitable <laughs> as a human to kind of give that kind of advice back really um we have had people come and see this show maybe six or seven times we've had we've had people who've come back trying to uh, it appeals to the obsessive in people um which is quite right really because you know that's kind of personality i am and um yeah so it's something quite quite nice that that has actually worked as <laughs> i think in a way you are your own demographic yeah i mean yeah and essentially and i think if you're making anything i think if you if you start from that, then you, you're probably going to make a good thing, really, at least for yourself. But then, you know, but if you make it honestly and truthfully, then I think you'll, you will reach out and find an audience, I think. I believe that last month, and I hope I've got the number correctly, you enjoyed your 106th That's right. performance. And do you remember vaguely when your first performance was, just to give an idea of a span of time? So this was... Last December, December 2015, you had the 106th performance. Where and when approximately was performance one? Uh, well, we first did the first trial shows um, at the South Bank in 2012. So they were kind of like work in progress shows, um, a very different beast than it, than it became. So, um, 
yeah, back in 2012 at the South Bank. Um, and we sort of added a lot more interact interactivity um, uh, and a few more storylines and kind of tweak things that weren't quite quite working. I mean, the hardest job was to kind of balance out various decisions. So um, we had to work quite hard on that. So yeah, it's been a it's, it's been a long the long old project absolutely uh, yeah i mean it's uh, both hemispheres many different continents and celebrity audience members i have to ask about robert de niro you saw him there did he did he have a chat with you afterwards um so this was at the tribeca film festival and he gets a lot of flack for not going to the films that it's his festival he gets a lot of flack for not going to the films that are a part of his festival uh, but i guess he's seen most of the stuff because um, you you know you can watch it you have to usually submit your film beforehand um but we were showing as part of the the interactive documentary strand which is a kind of a, a genre i didn't really know existed until this kind of project kind of got to a certain point um but <laughs> i didn't know i also didn't know he was going to be there so i stepped out on stage i just kind of started the the beginning to the show and i was just looking at the audience and I was like that guy is fam- quite familiar I mean who is that guy there's a lot of people around him and then it suddenly twigged and I was like my god that's Robert De Niro and he's sort of watching this very awkward scene of me sat outside a house in Birmingham like this isn't supposed to happen um, but by the time I'd sort of got off stage I had to speak to some other people who were kind of doing sort of press interviews and stuff he disappeared and been swallowed up so I have no idea what he thought of the show but Maybe that's quite good. He's kind of there, saw him. People that have met him, um, journalists that I've spoken with, have kind of indicated that you know he's a very kind of reserved presence. That a lot of the the energy that he he brings to the films is very much reserved for when the camera's around, and that you know he's quite a a private man. But hats off to him as well for being the brains behind the Ithaca Film Festival. And obviously, if they're intelligent enough and have enough foresight to invite your good selves, they're okay in my book. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was. it's a, it's a huge honour to go to that kind of festival, you know. Um, and again, when we first started this, I had no idea that we'd be doing any kind of film festivals, let alone kind of some of the, the big high-profile ones. When you did South by Southwest, which, which I've had the pleasure of playing as a musician were you there as part of the film festival no so we were part of um a thing called hackney house which was this uh initiative between the mayor of um austin austin uh in texas and uh and uh initiative in hackney to get cr- uh, like a creative swap between people who kind of live in both areas um so they'd set up a i guess mainly interactive kind of work really uh, as part of, so we were part of a, a separate thing but on the on the on the high street so, so they have a big interactive strand don't they as well at south by southwest there's a big technology strand a film strand and a, and a music strand so we were sort of crossed over into the technology strand um which again is kind of this project seems to have crossed quite a few genres and areas that i also wouldn't never expected it are you troubled by spots blemishes and flaky skin well Download the Dookie Radio Show every Monday and your skin will be looking clear, radiant and luscious in no time. The Dookie Radio Show, your key to beautiful skin. Oh, hello, darling. Has anybody told you that you've got beautiful skin? Yes, 
all the time. At how long were you at South by Southwest for? Um, maybe just under a week or something like that. So not not a huge amount of time. Um, enough to kind of see some music things, a couple of the film festival things. I went to the um, Museum of Oddities on there, on that strip, which was quite good. There was only um, me and a kind of slightly older couple in there, and they've got a live um, sideshow kind of performer upstairs. So it was just three of us watching this man um, hang this bucket of dried fish from his eyelids using these hooks which was incredible i was thinking this is great i mean there's there's, that's a way to make a living however however bad it might feel to be squatting in your trunks pouring water over yourself in edinburgh like at least i'm not this guy to be fair though you nearly were in your trunks in australia yeah so yeah yeah. in a a parallel (laughs) universe you're the real version of Oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> Mr. Oddity in Austin. Yeah, I think you're right. Did you enjoy Austin? Yeah, I can see I can see why people really like it. it I mean, it felt a bit like Camden to me in that it was perhaps a bit self-mythologising and its oddness was a, wasn't was that odd. Um, but I guess that's from, from living in. Initially, it was a grassroots music festival where the back gardens of local residents would be transformed into these you know, tremendous uh, music venues and that old old school way of promoting bands and promoters all working together there was some evidence of that still being around when i performed at south by southwest in 2008 but the ashes were very much uh, present even then i have a feeling that uh, the fact that there's a, a technology exponent in it now i mean it speaks volumes the sort of night nightclub type nights were just huge corporate events so i ended up at um, a national geographic party where they're giving away drink and i was stood chatting to coolio at the bar and i was like this is what's the national geographic got to do with this so you know it's it's just huge corporate sponsorship there's like big google parties and you know yeah okay that's that's the kind of event it is now it's been hijacked by the the, the, the corporates the city itself is nice, though, but um, I wonder if, in a way, it's a bit like Edinburgh, where the Fringe Festival is great. I, I will go this year. I gave it a, a rest last year. But it's become so expensive, not only for the performers, but for the punters. It's kind of one thing if you want to take a chance on somebody for £5. It's another where you're shelling out £12 to somebody with a, a, a stammer and a piss stain on their trousers from the night before or indeed that morning trying to solicit your business um and that's a, a shame in a way um i think yeah i mean it needs a, an, an alternative in a sense and i think edinburgh in the last you know five or six years maybe has tried the free fringe model but that can't exist without the main bulk of the fringe and as a performer it's hugely expensive to go there with the show Unless you're being bankrolled by a, you know, uh, by a TV company or, or whoever it may be, uh, an agency who's trying to kind of get you on their panel shows. And if you're there with a show that's kind of interesting and more awkward, you you got to try and find the money up front for that. Um, so it is going to be prohibitive for for a lot of performers, I think. And the higher costs for for each slot are, are quite scary, yeah, are they not? Yeah, they're, they're, I mean you've you've got to guarantee a certain 
amount of tickets and income and then that's why the tickets are sort of set at a certain price so that mm. you can once you start doing the numbers that you can go okay even if i half fill this for the month i can break even and then you know a lot of performers are lucky to kind of get close to that breaking even stage which is a shame so then there needs to be an alternative to kind of that model but i don't know what that is maybe it's happening out there as we speak something that is it's a it's a virgin idea and it's just been realized write to us please at the dukey radio show we want to hear from you after you did your 106 performance and the fact that you on your blog commemorated it in a way felt like that's the end of, of this tour are there any dates scheduled or has the run come and gone with a view that you can revisit things if need be um it sort of feels like it's it's happened but that's not to say if more dates come in then i wouldn't be performing it um we've been looking over the last year most of our energies have gone and trying to transform the live show into a, a digital version in some way whether that's for online or uh telly where you could watch at home and kind of vote at home kind of change it as a as a live performance or a, um you know an interactive film um there are perhaps other routes to kind of its final form i guess um but there's no dates booked in at the moment how did it feel to pack everything away for that last time and in mid-december quite close to mr geller's birthday was it not it was yeah it wasn't that long before then um how was it emotional or did a part of you think ah good riddance yeah it's not well it's not like it's it's gone forever because it i mean it's still if the digital thing works then it would still be ongoing but i mean it's been a project that's taken so long and i've kind of given a lot to um there is you know i really desperate to kind of get some new new things underway i mean i'm working on a, a new book at the moment so that's kind of hopefully going to take up most of my energies going forwards but um yeah i mean it's always emotional when you kind of think okay i've been doing this for quite a while now maybe it's time to to give it a break you know we talked about the the end of the the tour if you will the touring side of it going back in tarantino fashion to the beginning in the the book and during the two performances that i've seen of choose your own documentary you make reference to yourself being ill and did you logging on to ebay to purchase those books the choose your adventure series which led to this incredible production are they related in any way? Were you kind of home unwell and trying to find respite from being under the weather with I your condition? Possibly a little bit of that. I mean, um, I was misdiagnosed for um, sort of thirty years, so just under thirty years, really. I, um, I was really ill as a child. I missed four years of high school. I was kind of ill, um, a bit younger than that as well, and I was misdiagnosed as having ME. And it wasn't until maybe six or seven years ago now maybe eight years ago i was um diagnosed as having ellis danlos which is a, a a disorder of the connective tissues which um comes from a sort of lack of collagen the wrong kind of collagen rather and collagen is the thing that holds your body together so it kind of affects everything so i have chronic joint pain constantly and that's just the thing you kind of have to live with um but as a kid uh, you know missing so much school means you kind of have to 
entertain yourself and divert yourself, you know, and perhaps, you know, being unable to kind of move off the couch, the majority of that or being stuck in a hospital bed and having um, adventures is, is perhaps makes sense when you're kind of looking backwards and you can see why choose your own adventure books were so compelling, I think, because it, it does allow you to kind of live those adventures out uh, and, and test yourself and make those kind of decisions and take risks in ways that you, you couldn't in everyday life. Um, I think revisiting them when I bought these books was perhaps, a, you know, I, I'm interested in experimental literature and things like that. And I think part of it was looking back at those kind of, of books as a, an experimental form, but also I think as a, as a odd kind of nostalgia and, and kind of perhaps, you know, because I've, I've suffered with illnesses as an adult. So I think it was, could have been around that period, but I don't know if there's a direct link, but there's definitely, uh, yeah, there's definitely a tie in there to, to being ill and kind of wanting to kind of live those adventures. Escape through a varied series of adventures that the, that the books offer. So you were originally misdiagnosed when you were, that's quite, quite a young lad. Yeah, 13, 12 mm. to 13, something like that. And were you experiencing chronic joint pain back then as well, or did that yeah, manifest itself always had later? Yeah, joint pain in my, my legs, um, and then my bladder had stopped working for like two years or something, and they never thought that would sort of right itself. But it's because, I mean, looking back, all those things make sense, because the, the correct diagnosis now means that, you know... The, the lack of collagen will affect all of those things. It means you lack strength in in most of your kind of bodily organs, muscles, all that kind of thing, really. I jokingly call it, you know, the, the bendy disease. Usually one of the symptoms is incredible flexibility. You can do things with your fingers, which might make the the non-bendy people cringe. Yeah, you can bend your kind of fingers and your, your, your arms back. Double-jointedness is, you know, potentially, possibly a sign of the, this condition. Um, there are Famous people, um, famous, famous within the world that I kind of I like to research, um, sort of sideshow performers, circus performers for the last 150, 200 years. Anyone that's um, been billed as an incredible rubber man or elastic skin girl, they've, they've, they've had the same condition. Um, there's a man now called Gary Stretch, who is uh, from Leeds. He holds a Guinness World Record for being able to stretch the skin of his stomach out. Um, I think it's maybe eight or nine inches from his from his stomach um if you if you google gary stretch uh skin i guess you're gonna find these incredible pictures where he's gonna pull in his cheeks out um it's yeah so i mean you can people have kind of turned this around and, and used it to their advantage um, the condition forced you to miss mainstream education for an extended period and then in your 20s did you start to feel better in a way had your body recovered or did life as a student and as a 20 something mask the the symptoms the, the, you know the the boozy partying doing short fuse one night doing well, a magic show the next well i kind of um i suppose that's another another side to things when i was ill is that i also got into magic and performing magic and i guess it's also kind of escapism in a in a strange sense mm. it's kind of that given that sense of wonderment and it's something you can you need to spend time on your own to learn to do magic and uh it was actually quite a useful thing for me because i was i was incredibly shy as a kid and also being ill made that worse and i think having to force yourself to perform to do magic has kind of led me 
roughly to where I am now, I think. Um, but I became well enough to go back to school f- to around A-level age. So I did all my GCSEs and A-levels at the same time. Came to London to university, um, did a master's. But throughout all of that, I still had joint pain, most of the problems with my legs, all, all that kind of thing. Um, but things generally improved. You know, you know, you kind of assume that's your, your life. And I was well enough to run around performing gigs. Um, I used to run a weekly spoken word night. Um, used to work full time, you know, and all those things inevitably came to a head again um in my late 20s early 30s i think it was when i became really ill again and that timeline is just predates you going onto ebay and getting yeah. those choose your adventure books yeah. so there is a, a pattern even if it's not an immediate thing and oh goodness it must have been really horrible to go from being hyper busy and then due to hyper mobility eventually being laid low once again yeah i think the difficulty with that was i'd never been that ill as a as an adult and i think as a kid you can kind of accept that in a in a in a sense because you don't know any different and perhaps you, you don't have the same responsibilities obviously um and then you feel like you're missing out on all the the kind of adult stuff and you have other pressures of kind of money and you know all that kind of relationships all that kind of stuff really yeah Whereabouts did you go to, to uni in, in London town? I came to um, London Guildhall and I did um, semiotic theory and fine art for my degree, which was a sort of a heady concoction. My word. Me. So, yeah. But I think, I mean, all that stuff is... Like, people always say about their degrees, oh, I've never used any of that stuff. But I think I, I genuinely do. <laughs> yeah, like... You're one of the few people. I mean, with the exception of the medical profession or people that go and read law, <laughs> you are one of the few away from those disciplines who genuinely has uh, yeah, I mean, taken I, that a step further. I think, I, you know, I don't I don't necessarily make fine art as such, but it's kind of all my interests then are still kind of things that I sort of funnel into what I make now, definitely. And what yeah. did you do your master's degree in? I did my master's. I wrote a history of UK performance poetry from the 1950s to round about 2000. Um, because it was a, a history of um, uh, an organic folk kind of history, I suppose. It was a history of poetry written by people who then stand up in pubs and read it out. And there was no real documented history um, of these events that probably don't, you know, don't exist outside of a few flyers that someone's kept in their in their loft or kind of some reminiscences so it was about kind of collecting those those stories really from some of the main proponents like adrian mitchell through the liverpool poets like adrian henry roger mcgoff and then john heckley john cooper clark spoke to all those kind of people benjamin zephaniah um and then also a lot of the people who are kind of running very small gigs and, and find out the reasons behind it and why they're kind of drawn to that either going to that kind of event or why they would on to writing that kind of thing really i understand that you used to work with john Hegley. yeah well i when i was doing my masters i interviewed john and we we spent another like hour and a half just chatting afterwards and he was like uh, do you how are you with typing and i was like i'm pretty pretty okay and he went oh i'm looking for someone to to employ to do my typing for me um so for maybe eight years i was sort of typing all of john's work john writes everything by hand um and his handwriting is terrible it's like mine it's so bad you kind of have to mainly guess at what the the shape of the word but because my handwriting's bad i think that's why i could read john's um but john sort of i don't know if it, he turned it into a game or whether it's just his natural way of being so often i'd get a pile of typing that might be written on the 
bag that you get your buffet in on the train so it'd be over the handle and around the inside um, and once he brought a rucksack to a meeting for me to get the typing from him and he went oh this is yours gave me the whole rucksack and inside it had this huge leather legal ledger from about 1850 and it's so heavy that he'd had to kind of find a, an old rucksack to, to to put it in and he'd been he goes I just thought it was the right place to write some new poems in I was like yeah, we could do with something a bit lighter, really. But um, so quite often it would be on the absurd things that I'd have to kind of try and try and decode his writing from. And how long did you work as, for all intents and purposes, Hegley's typist? Uh, I don't know, about seven or eight years, something like that. And uh, so it's a re- quite an extended period. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it was kind of a an odd apprenticeship, really, in that we don't make the same kind of thing at all. But uh, I think it was. It was to show kind of how much work you need to put into writing what might be the simplest, simplest seeming thing, I think, is what I've taken from that mainly. But also how hard it is to kind of make a living at this kind of stuff, and the, the volume of work and, and time you need to put into pretty constantly doing stuff because you don't really know what's going to happen with it. You, know, you have to kind of work hard to make sure you're, you're making the best stuff. And do you feel that... Hegley will enjoy the resurgence of interest that John Cooper Clark is enjoying now, and deservedly so. I know they're very, very different poets, um, but uh, you know, all you have to do is flick on the telly, and you can hear John Cooper Clark telling you about the virtues of certain chips, oven chips, and you know, good on him. Do whatever you can, make hay while you can. Hegley seems to have gone a little bit quiet. I'm not seeing his name about as much. Um, yeah, I think that was for all sorts of reasons, really. I mean, he was working, you know, incredibly hard for, you know, professionally as a as a poet and a performer for 35 years. And, you know, and you, that, you, at some point you're going to have to kind of take a step back, perhaps, and and kind of re reevaluate what you're doing and why you might be doing it. And um, I think with John Cooper Clark, he, you know, he'd gone off the radar for so long and had a tale about or many many thousands of tales about you know heroin addiction and but even after that period of his life when it was the really dark days and he'd kind of and you can't remember most of that um there's a period when i first moved to london he was doing tiny pub gigs as a poet um i remember seeing him above a pub in um uh, just off carnaby street uh and maybe 30 40 people in a room came to see him you know which is crazy now when you think about you know he's at the queen elizabeth hall you know all these kind of places i saw him supporting a veteran punk artist at the electric ballroom in december of 2014 and you know about 1800 people there listening to every word you know people were making a beeline for the stage before he went on and i thought that was a thing of beauty these are people from quite a a surprisingly varied demography who, due to his appearances on television and you know, he's become a, a national treasure. And it was great to see that that happening because, you know, I remember not that long ago when, you know, he was performing in front of three people and a dog in some Camden back street. It was funny because I went to see one of his uh, Festival Hall shows and he'd come on with this carrier bag with his with poems in and people shouting out titles of, of poems and things like that. And he sort of looks around quietly, very dryly, 
and turns into the microphone. It didn't always used to be like this. And there's something it sums up so, so well, kind of what had happened and kind of that, that point in his life. I think John Hegley deserves that kind of um, resurgence Agreed. of his work. Mm. Um, you know, I, you need someone really to champion your work and, and, and to get it in front of people again. Um, but I, I think it will happen. I mean, he's, he's got so much, so much great stuff out there and he's, and he's still writing stuff. So. I mean, in the same way that the Sopranos featured a, a John Cooper Clark track. The bloody cups are bloody king, bloody keep it bloody clean. Somebody somewhere in some form will reference Hegley and Hegley deserves it. I agree 100%. I'd like to see him, I'd like to see him performing in front of 1,800 people and in his own Lutonian way saying it didn't always used to be like this yeah no i think i mean it will happen i mean john is a, di- a very different john hegley is a very different creature and his, his work's very different than obviously than john cooper clark but uh you know he's, he's got some great songs as well i, was just, I mean there is a music exponent you know he'll yeah, be yeah. there with his little guitar ukulele and you know he writes in a in a very almost sub billy bragg style music sync people very much check hegley out own. okay cheers you've got to only a few months ago, you and your other half, Sarah, yes, worked as co-writers and put out something which I'm quite intrigued about. A book entitled An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in London. And in particular, North East London, Hackney. Which square is it? It's the square outside the town hall. It's... Oh. It was chosen because of its civic normality, its kind of ordinariness. It is quite pedestrian. It, it, it's a square that could be anywhere in in England, and it just so happens to be in front of the town hall, just off Mare Street. You were inspired by a Parisian-based work from 1974. How did you come across that work to begin with? Georges... Georges Perec. Right. Um, he writes uh, experimental literature um he was part of a, a french experimental writing group called the Ulipo, who um had members like duchamp was a member quite early on um and it was a way to take uh sort of mathematical constraints and apply them to literature that was the sort of early form but then any constraints so georges barek is famous for a book that he wrote which is a novel a, a mystery novel um, but it doesn't contain any words that have the letter e in them uh, which, Blimey. So original originally came out in French, uh, and it's been translated into English as a void, and it still follows the same constraint, which I find utterly mind blowing. My word! I'm just trying to really uh, absorb that. So no, he, she, they, sex. I mean, as soon as you start, kind of, he's got he, you know, you know, so many, so many important words in terms of putting sentences together. It also gives a new meaning to the expression "drop a fucking e." You use your limitations to your advantage. It forces you to definitely go a different route in terms of the phraseology that you employ. And how was it working with Sarah? Is this the first time that you've been involved with co-writing? Uh, yeah, it was It was quite painless and, and fun, really. Um, so George Breck had written this uh, sort of side project. In the 70s, he started writing work about place and memory and kind of... Uh, the idea of kind of visiting places and trying to to write exactly what they were, but not in a historical sense, but in a in the in the very utterly ordinary 
the sense of place and, and what people use them for. Um, so in 1974, he carried out um, an experiment where over three days he would he would sit and try and catalogue everything that happened in a square in Paris. So on the 40th anniversary of this utterly banal account of a square in Paris, we, we did the same thing with an ordinary square in Hackney. Um, so Sarah... And so Georges Brecht's work is uh, a work of one writer. So I worked with Sarah and we we set up some kind of alternative accounts of the same thing. So quite often we might be seeing the same thing, but seeing it in a different way, or we'd observe completely different things and looking in different directions. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, it was an interesting experiment. How uh, did you go about cataloguing all of this? Were you there with clipboards? I think it would be so easy now to, to video everything, to photograph everything. And to me, that would be the wrong approach. Like I think you have to, to get rid of all that because we, you kind of you just get swamped with so much visual information these days, and I think the act of translating it into language sort of makes it more more powerful and more poignant because some of these things you have to imagine these things for yourself. Um, and Sarah's background is in anthropology; that was her sort of degree and her her masters. So, um, so between us, the sort of two approaches work quite well. And kind of my background in, in poetry and that kind of thing. Um, so. It's yeah, it's an interesting dual catalogue really of of everything that happened. So I I wrote everything out by hand, and Sarah wrote on a, a laptop. Not that I necessarily think the the modes of transcription alter what's written, but I think uh, I don't know. There is something kind of different about writing everything out by hand these days, and uh, it, it I think maybe you become more invisible in a way. I don't know. It's true. I think everybody has become quite acclimatised to seeing people with smartphones and tablets that somebody's just standing there writing. Goodness, is this person travelling from the past via a time machine? Oh, my word. And I know that square very well. I used to live down the road from there, as well as uh, working quite literally off the square. What were the the highlights and the lowlights? Obviously, people can look at the book and we'll give you details in a moment, but uh, titillate me, sell it to me. <laughs> it's an odd thing to try and sell because I, I really want to sell it on how banal a lot of it is. Um, I think there's a thing of beauty in that's, that's different in this account than, than Barek's uh, original is that we're so swamped with our advertising language and you, it's it's everywhere you know and it, as soon as you start cataloguing like adverts on the side of buses or vans or you sort of get this overlay of another another level of reality over the kind of ordinary events of people's lives i think there's something very sweet about how people are with each other when you really stop to look at how people interact with each other because especially in the city because you get used to kind of blocking things out or you assume uh certain things about certain areas you know that um probably aren't true you know i think people are funny um the gym, you know people do help each other all the time as well as also not you know but that it's that it's those ordinary moments that you'd overlook that i think uh, were really key for me and uh because we, we live in a world that's so fast you kind of just ignore that i think taking the time like three days to sit down and just look at how people are with each other celebrating the theater of life in a microcosm of civic 
goodness in the heart of, of Hackney. Did anybody question you as to what you were doing? Did anybody even notice or did you both manage to genuinely do all of this beneath the radar? Yeah, it was done beneath the radar. I think Sarah says that um, I think there's one one guy sort of was staring at her but then kind of smiled and then walked off. So, I mean, it could be about anything, you know. Um, but, yeah, kind of completely under the under the radar. Um, once we'd finished... Once we'd finished the accounts, I mean, it, it was just an experiment at first. I didn't necessarily think it would be a book, um, but once we realised it was heading in that direction, um, we kind of trying to seek out local illustrators to try and illustrate kind of those micro moments that happen in uh, in the, in the square. So we put adverts up in the local news agents and, and things like that. Um, ask just very generic adverts saying illustrator wanted um, to illustrate a book about Hackney please contact so these went up between like the adverts for massage and men with vans uh but the response was amazing we had some really great work and i think it's um i like to say it's a kind of rewarding people who are paying attention to their environment because it'd be so easy to find illustrators by just putting a thing on facebook you, you know you'd, you'd find people immediately but i think going the harder route was was more rewarding really absolutely you could be in a in a tiny english hamlet in you know, 1702 and you could find a, an artist uh, um, to assist you then it's it's great to be able to utilize old school means of communication you know facebook isn't necessarily the real world and also it's quite fortunate that you're in a part of the world where, where there'll be many illustrators or people with arts background so how long did it take between you putting up one of those adverts and getting replies Kind of almost instantaneously, really. I mean, they were up for maybe a month, something like that, just under a month. So in that time, we, could, we kind of had a good variety of work sent. Um, and it was just a case of kind of choosing the right work to kind of illustrate the, the right kind of moments. Um, How can people go about getting a copy of an attempt at uh, exhausting a place in London? Uh, you can go to my website, for a simple way. www.nathanpennington.com Yes, and, and there are links to where links you can purchase not only a copy, but a signed copy, signed by both of you. Yeah. Did you sign them in tandem? Was yes. it tedious? How many copies did you sign? Very good question. There is a, uh, an extremely limited edition of 26, um, which has an alternative cover, and they've all been stamped with uh, the letters A to Z. Uh, there's not very many of them left, so be quick. Um, but there are the general edition, and we will sign them as, as often as people want to buy them from my website. That book came out in November, and you hinted at the fact that you also have another book on the go. Tell me more. Yeah, so I've um, very luckily been awarded uh, Authors Foundation Award um, to research a, a new book, um, and it is about two sideshow performers from America, and they were living in nineteen, born in nineteen fifteen, um, died. Uh, 1999 um, so it covers a gr really good period of American history um, and I'm kind of drawn to sideshow performers in general it's something I've been interested in for a very long time but also particularly as we mentioned earlier in terms of Ellis Danlos and incredible elastic skin people absolutely yeah, there's a bendy sideshow performer within you yeah I, I mean, you mean uh, but I think what's drawn me to that is how people have transformed what could be a debilitating condition whatever that might have been into 
either into entertainment or to kind of make the the best of that situation. Now, obviously, it's a really complex area because it deals with disability and what um, people perceive is the right thing to do with that. I mean, it, it it's really interesting ground, and and not unlike performance poetry, it's kind of a histories that haven't always been written by uh, in in the right kind of way or by or telling the the stories by the people who who've really got the stories to tell. So, it's a kind of it will be a, a sort of dual biography of of performers, but also kind of written from a more folk history point of view, I think. How far along are you? When is it going to be available for people to purchase or download or listen to? Uh, very good question. Um, the research is sort of ongoing, so hopefully this period will be finished by, by the summer and then the writing in earnest will begin. So we're still a little way off, but um, I will keep you updated when... As we get news when it's that. done, I hope that you will come back here and uh, we will talk about that bad boy. Yeah, well, I'd love to. I mean, I think by then, hopefully some more new adventures will have happened along <laughs> the way. So, yeah, we'll have some stuff to talk about. In doing your research, will you be going to the States to find out more about the families? Yeah, so I've got to go over to Florida um, in the spring. Uh, they've got some great sort of big museums of circus over there in the in the US. They've got incredible archives. So imagine like the Wellcome Institute in London, but instead of based on science, kind of based on on circus. So uh, yeah, that's that's my next Florida in the spring. You've chosen your locations and the timing of your visit there wisely. Um, well, particularly if it's happening during spring break, that'll be a different kind of welcome. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, another kind of sideshow as <laughs> yeah, well. Definitely. <laughs> In December, you did your 106th performance of Choose Your Own Documentary. You've got a new book out, An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in London. And you've got the new book on the go about sideshow performers. And somehow you managed to find the time to review zines. Tell me more. So I've been collecting zines, you know, as, you know I'm an obsessive collector uh, and that's something I can't get away from. Um, and at some point in the last 18 months, I realised that a lot of this stuff, and there's no way to sort of share it with people. So I'd started putting things on my blog, and it's led to reviewing new zines for a website called Syndicated Zine Reviews. Um, and I love it. I mean, you get sent so much varied stuff. And I love zines for their very, can be very personal nature. I mean, they're very important objects there might only be a hundred of them in a world but they're you know somebody's put time and passion into kind of making this thing and um so yeah i've been reviewing zines for that so if anyone listening has any zines or they they make zines or knows anyone who does then um yeah please go to my website and then send me an email um or just send me an email info at nathanpenlington.com and we're, yeah we can speak do you consider virtual zines to still be zines or are we looking for old school photocopier being utilized or printing presses doing stuff how how orthodox how catholic are you about the uh zine definition web zines are okay but you want the real McCoy. i want the real thing i want something i can put in my pocket i want something i can put in my bag um somebody sent me a zine on the tape now that is brilliant um an audio but, zine uh, on cassette it's amazing these days and that is kind of visiting a, a technology that very few people have so you have to kind of be dedicated to try and 
seek out a way to to listen to this mostly um but yes yeah, stuff you can put in your pocket and carry around one of my favorite zines um of all time and for christmas um my girlfriend gave me sarah gave me a uh, hundred back issues of a zine called duplex planet which was a zine that was started in the 1980s uh, and has been running ever since and it's interviews with old people in um some a set of nursing homes in the states um and it's just just questions to old people such as um uh, what's your favourite song or if uh, if you had to write an autobiography what would it be called a record is made by uh, hot tar and uh, you have to wear gloves to push it flat and when it happens you have to let it cool down and then, then the record can be played on uh, on both sides it's the, the cooling off process that makes a good record and uh, you can play a lot of tunes on it um just question, just question the conversations with old people and the responses are amazing there. They're utterly funny, you know, emotional. I mean, all the good stuff, tragic, you know, heartbreaking, um, profound. I mean, that that is the real stuff of scenes for me is kind of reaching that kind of material. Question, final question. When you were last on the Dookie Radio Show in January of 2014, you referred to a part of the southeast of England where your parents now live, Essex, has been the nicest place on earth. Do you still feel this way? It is not a loaded question. It is a question, though. I think Essex is definitely a step up from real. I would have to say... I really love Is that saying much? (laughs) No, it's... Hang on, let me start again. (laughs) I mean, it's saying something. Um, Oh, it's fucking saying something. No, Essex is definitely a a step up from real. I think it is... um, It's genuinely friendly, but I I would say that I really love Hackney. And that's... um, I just love it. I'm quite loyal to Hackney as well. Live there, work there... Had a studio there for many, many years. It is a a cultural mecca in the capital city and continues to be a place where a lot of exciting things are still happening. And uh, long may Hackney reign supreme as the the centre of everything that is good and exciting in the world of the arts. So, what, Hackney? Nice. Nathan Pennington, it has been a slice of adventurous heaven having you here on the Dookie Radio Show once again. Oh, thank you for having me. What a truly inspirational and captivating man. With his creative interests spanning a multitude of fields and formats, Nathan is genuinely a modern-day Renaissance man. The world, and Hackney in particular, is a much better place for having him as a resident. You've been listening to our interview with Nathan Pennington. My name is Juki and I've been your host. May the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page Facebook It's the 
easy to find, it will not take an age. Facebook www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show, the Dukey Radio Show. The thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show, the Dukey Radio Show. 